Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 360 of the podcast. It is March 15th, 2020. Joining us today is a returning guest. She is Leah Binder. She's the president and CEO of an organization called Leapfrog Group. We last spoke four years ago. It was episode 240, if you want to go back and hear that discussion. But today we're talking about a number of things. We start off by talking about hospitals preparation for the current COVID-19 or coronavirus threat. Um, Leapfrog Group is going to be offering some free webinars and other resources uh, soon through their website, which you can find at leapfroggroup.org. And then we'll step back and talk more broadly about two other important topics. We'll talk about safety in the outpatient or um, ambulatory surgery setting. Why is there a lack of reporting, a lack of data compared to hospital surgical procedures? You know, 60% of procedures are done uh, in an outpatient setting today in the United States. So we'll talk about progress that's been made also um, the last four years in the general uh, patient safety front. So if you want to find links to all of this and uh, the important resources that LeapFrog Group will be providing, you can go to the blog post for this episode at leanblog.org slash 360. Leah, hi. Thank you for coming back uh, to be a guest again on the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me back, Mark. So, you know, we were going to, we, we have other things to talk about in terms of, um, you know, progress with um, patient safety, but first and foremost on everybody's minds uh, right now is, you know, coronavirus, or, aka COVID-19. And um, so I thought, you know, I would ask uh, first, you know, what, what thoughts that you have, um, what, what thoughts you have about, you know, uh, hospital preparedness and um, what, what's, what's taking place or what needs to happen to be best equipped to deal with this? The first thought that I've had through this entire uh, outbreak has been how grateful I am for the people who work in hospitals. Mm -hmm. We really, as a country, have a lot to be grateful for that they are there. Especially in times like this, it takes a lot of courage to go to work, to care for people, and be willing to expose yourself to some risk that most of us don't have to go through every day. I mean, we're all exposed to some risk now, but uh, but we're not walking into it uh, every day when we go to work. Uh, and they are, and they're our heroes. I mean, they're going to take mm-hmm. care of us. So I and I I have the greatest and deepest respect. In fact, that's why I'm doing what I do because mm-hmm. I have such a deep respect for the people who give their lives to healthcare. I mean, not just in terms of working there, but also just their the level of education that they that they have, the the way that they study and care and and put so much precision into everything they do on behalf of patients. So I just have a lot of respect for people in healthcare, and so we have to think about them first right now because we need them and we need their courage, and we have to be grateful for it when when we get it. Um, but I, I guess the other the other issue is why I'm in this why I do what I do for LeapFrog, which is we are out there um, raiding hospitals on their safety, really out there advocating for safety and quality of healthcare. And I guess the, the assumption is that's uh, adversarial to the hospital industry. And sometimes it is. I mean, there are hospitals that we 
say are not doing a good enough job and they need to do better. And that, I guess, can be perceived as adversarial. But really, it's about um, really respecting the importance of hospitals and healthcare in our in our lives as Americans. And mm-hmm. in that deep respect, we have a high level of accountability and requirements for absolute um, dedication and devotion to the work they're doing. So, um, so that's the side that we've been working on in terms of focusing on safety. And now that we're in this outbreak, we have probably, at least in my memory, not faced a situation like this where the safety and the safety performance of our healthcare system is so absolutely critical. It is critical that everyone knows how to protect themselves as a worker and as a patient from the transmission of, a, uh, of an infection. And that is uh, net, that's just that's front and center in everyone's mind. And for, I think, hospitals that have a long history of doing this well, they're in a much better situation. They're much better prepared no matter what uh, for, for coronavirus and COVID-19 as uh, people come in their doors. They're just better prepared because they have these culture. They have a culture and a habit of, of providing care that is protective and keeps patients safer. So uh, we now are recognizing the importance of the safety work. I hope what we learn from this lasts and goes into the future that we re- remember what we what we're going to be learning today about safety. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing, um, you know, the, the gratitude for the great people in healthcare. Um, you know, there, there's a health system I've been working with recently and, you know, I, right now there's not just the, the need for a focus on patient safety, but, um, you know, in, in these circumstances, staff safety, as, as, as you said, you know, there are, um, when we talk more broadly about hospital acquired infections, um, you know, central line bloodstream infection is not going to spread to the caregiver. And um, now we, we've got that double, and uh, you know, I see organizations, thankfully, at least where, you know, where I've been recently, there's that double focus. Um, if we don't take care of the providers, they literally won't be able to take care of um, the patients because they'll either be kept home uh, in isolation or, or, or worse, they, uh, they, they get sick themselves. So, um, yeah, I think that emphasis on taking care of people is important. And, you know, to throw it back to you for a second, I, I know from previous conversations, we're on the same page that the problems uh, related to patient safety, or in this case, if there are concerns about preparedness, that these are system problems, that we have great people um, great individuals. My concern is not about the individuals, but my, my concern generally and, and right now is more about um, systems and, and training and supply chains and things like that. What, what, what do you think? Absolutely. It's a, and it's about management and leadership as mm-hmm. well and culture and the kinds of elements of a, of a, a healthy infrastructure for an organization. When there's a healthy infrastructure then you see healthier patients and healthier workers. I mean, everybody's healthier because we're functioning in a way that makes sense. And I, I, that sounds really pie in the sky, I suppose, especially for people on the front lines of this uh, coronavirus right now. But it, the, the fact is that it's sort of the habits of a culture, the habits and the, 
the ongoing, the, the way that we behave when we're at work with each other, those are fundamentally what keeps people safe or doesn't. They're dysfunctional. They don't keep people safe. And, uh, and if we're not good at correcting problems when they arise, that also doesn't keep people safe. And that's true no matter whether it's a central line infection or COVID-19. I mean, those are the same principles. So correcting those cultural elements or, or improving our culture of safety is it's really hard to do. And it's really important, which is why your work with uh, hospitals has been so, um, so important. Well, and, and the culture of safety takes time. And, and, and so somebody uh, two weeks ago um, said, well, okay, well, you know, we've got COVID-19 coming. Let, let, you don't just implement a culture of safety overnight. So I, I would expect organizations that have been working on that um, for, for, for years now, um, you know, making it safe for people to speak up about concerns that they have about preparedness will lead to better preparedness um, right. to, to build upon that existing culture. Well, uh, it sounds maybe a little crass, but coronavirus does give us an opportunity to correct a culture that we perhaps didn't have in the past. So when mm-hmm. all of a sudden priorities shift in, in an entire organization overnight, very quickly, and when priorities shift, that is an opportunity to recreate the expectations we have of each other within a system, within an organization. So, um, you know, in, in, in terms of preparedness um, in, in, in resources, LeapFrog Group is, is going to be making some things available for, for organizations and, and also for the public. Is that right? Right. We're offering a series of uh, webinars and other um, educational materials, primarily for hospitals and for ambulatory surgery centers. Uh, we'll be bringing together experts who can talk about different elements of improving your safety and quality and culture, uh, uh, other areas of interest at this particular moment. So we'll we'll just try to do our part to make sure that the hospitals and ambulatory, ambulatory surgery centers that we work with are as prepared as, as they can be and get the information they need. We're just, we're just trying to, to help. Well, yeah. And I, I appreciate that. Um, people can find, I assume if they just go to leapfroggroup.org. Right. Leapfroggroup.org. And you can either sign up for our newsletter or just right on the homepage will be the information. Uh, as we haven't posted it yet, but we'll be posting information about upcoming uh, webinars and opportunities. Great. So I encourage people to check that out. And, and even if you're listening um, in the future, after hopefully COVID-19 is sort of in the rearview mirror, there are, of course, on an ongoing basis, a lot of important um, issues to look into and, and resources um, from LeapFrog Group. So I, I would encourage people um, to go check that out. Um, but Leah, you mentioned um, ambulatory surgery centers, and you know, there's there's often so much focus on um, hospital safety in uh, in in our circles, and, and Leapfrog Group is of course known for um, doing hospital ratings. But you know, more and more care is is moving to outpatient settings. Um, so I'm curious if you can share with us, you know, about what you're seeing in terms of um, safety and improvement in the outpatient and ambulatory realm. Well, one thing that has been surprising to us <clears throat> is that. 
over 60% of all surgeries are now done mm-hmm. either from an outpatient hospital unit or from uh, an ambulatory surgery center. And that actually is quite a astronomical growth, e- even though we certainly have seen a trend toward more outpatient surgery. We didn't realize that it had become the majority of surgeries and a, a vast majority now. And I think that that is only accelerating. From what we can hear, there's an increasing effort to move patients into this these outpatient or day surgery settings. So even things like hip replacement, which mm-hmm. I find it shocking you can do a hip replacement um, in an ambulatory surgery center, but they are doing that. And they're using some pretty creative approaches to how, um, you know, what people do once, once they leave the surgery center, because, you know, you just, you don't get around that easily after, right after your hip replacement. Right. Some of them are using like hotels that they can stay at or, or they go home, but they're, there's some oversight, but I don't think there's any one particular technique around that, but it's an example of where this, this new realm of surgery is kind of evolving and we need to make sure that it's doing so in a way that's most beneficial to patients. And also that we identify the best practices and those best practices replicated and not replicate those practices that don't work. You know, that's just kind of fundamental to how any new market, new emerging movement goes. We want to shape it so that it works best. So um, that's why we got into this. We, we said, well, we don't really know anything about the quality or safety of ambulatory surgery centers. There's very, very, very little information available to the public. There's four measures that um, CMS, the agency that runs Medicare, there's four measures that they look at around ambulatory surgery centers. And then for outpatient surgery, they actually don't look at all that much either. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of what CMS is reporting on is inpatient surgery. That's something we've reported on as well for quite some time, but outpatient is different. And there's also fewer requirements on outpatient and uh, and ambulatory surgery centers. So uh, two big examples that we are asking both places to fix is that they are not required by CMS to to um, administer with a CAP survey or the patient experience surveys that have been developed by ARC and are tested really good instruments. They're not required to do that. And so we don't necessarily always know patient feedback on how they're mm-hmm. doing. And that's pretty important. And then the other thing that they're not required to do, which is very important right now, is they're not required to report to NHSN or CDC on their infections. On those, on five of the primary hospital acquired infections or healthcare acquired infections, such as we were talking earlier about central line infections, mm-hmm. UTI infections, MRSA, C. diff, um, and then there's a surgical site infection for colon. Right. They're not required to report that an inpatient is. Inpatient hospitals are, but not outpatient surgery. Hmm. And not, uh, again, not, not uh, ambulatory surgery centers. Do, do you know why that is? Is that just a matter of uh, regulation kind of lagging this shift from inpatient to outpatient surgery? I, it's definitely a lag. <clears throat> I'm not sure why it is. We've been pressing CMS quite a lot to improve the reporting, but I, I do think it's going to require some legislation. I think they were exempt from the legislation originally that required public reporting. So I think we're just, uh, I think there's some some policy work ahead to get mm. there. 
but we're asking for it voluntarily. And that uh, is the way that I think we can be somewhat persuasive, hopefully, is that LeapFrog represents um, employers and other purchasers of health benefits, hundreds of them across the country and many of the largest employers like um, you know Walmart or, or GM or Boeing. We, we have uh, we work with them and they work with us and they ask um, right now they ask hospitals but now they are also asking ASCs to please report this data so hopefully in being responsive to these employers um, we will have lots of ASCs and hospital outpatient units giving us this data even though they're not required to report it so and I, I see on the website here um where it talks about LeapFrog ASC survey that it began last year, 2019. Yes. Um, and and if if I hear you right, you you are, are you do you um, send out the surveys to all ASCs? And you said it's voluntary to reply to LeapFrog Group, or it's re- is that right? Yeah, it's voluntary. It it's a it's a web based survey, so we send ASCs a letter, and it'll say we're asking you to please report this and usually on behalf of your uh, some employers in your region, as well as some national employers who are asking specifically this ASC to please respond. Then we give them a, a link to a website. You can also download the whole survey, regardless of whether you get the letter, and uh, go on site. They, we gave them a code so they can get on to their own survey, and we can therefore verify that it's them responding. So it's their own response and then they can submit this the survey to us and then that data is publicly reported but in order to report like the infection rates which is very very important to employers um, they have to participate with cdc and this unit called nhsn that collects infection data and then um, calculates an infection rate for them and in order to participate with cdc they do have to um, they do have to sign up with CDC and there is some uh, some extra work that's associated with that. So we are encouraging them to do it. It gives us a, a systematic way and a fair way of, of reporting their infection rate. So um, I'm a little bit afraid to ask, but how, how are the response rates? What did you find in that first year? Well, because it was the first year that we did the for the ASCs that we did the survey. So we've always done hospitals. This is our 20th year. We're actually having our 20th anniversary this year. Uh, So we've been reporting on hospitals for quite some time and we get about 2,100 hospitals we got last year reporting, which represents 70% of hospital beds, inpatient beds. So that's pretty good. I mean, we wish we got a hundred percent, but clearly we're, we're ahead of anything else that, that I know of that's collecting data on hospitals. So that's what we're doing for hospital. But for this, as you say, this was our first year out. And we really, um, we aren't publicly reporting the data. It was almost like a pilot year. Mm -hmm. We anticipated getting about 250 ASCs because we don't know ASCs. We're just kind of learning as we go. And they're learning who we are because they don't necessarily know about LeapFrog, nor do they have any experience with public reporting most of the time. I mean, I don't think Mm -hmm. any of them have ever had to or thought about public reporting of their data. So, so it's a brand new thing. Anyway, we hope to get 250 and we got 350, which we were pleased with. Uh, and obviously now we need to ramp that up substantially. We have to get um, 
uh, we hope to get in the thousands. I mean, there's 5,000 of them that we're reaching out to. So now we really would like to see many more, and we think we will. If even from that reporting um, from from that first year, is it possible to generalize? If you know, if you're curious, well, are surgical site infection rates on par with hospitals? Are they lower or higher at ASCs? That I I just don't know. We mm-hmm. we don't have this. We don't have the infection data yet. It, only a handful. Not I mean literally a handful of. ASCs have reported that data so far to mm. CDC. So uh, unfortunately, we don't have the data. And that is why we need it as not just leapfrog, but why this country needs it. I mean, these are very 60% of all surgeries being done yep. in places where we don't know anything about the infection rates, wow. at least on a public level. I mean, I'm sure some health plans can look at infection rates for their enrollees, but <clears throat> us, you know, our families, my mother going to surgery, I want to know what's the, what's the rate? You know, that's a fundamental question. I think any of us want to know, and certainly employers want to know. Yeah. They really want to know what's the infection rate. And, and the infection rate, by the way, also has to be traced, not just from the day that you got the surgery. That's what makes it tricky with outpatient mm-hmm. surgery and, and, uh, and ambulatory surgery centers, because an infection might show up 24 hours later or five days later associated with that surgery. So you do need to be able to trace it back. And that's, again, uh, I think what these data will be able to do for us too. Wow. So yeah, that that seems like a huge gap in um, the information that would be required for an individual to make a good decision um, so it's just, you know, and, and, you know, right. leapfrog group, you know, if, if listeners aren't aware, um, you know, does the letter grades on hospital safety. So, uh, it, it's suffice it to say there, there are no letter grades for ASCs that, that may you would, you're working toward that in the future, right? We'd love to do that in the future. It, that yeah. will require much more from CMS because that requires data that we use from other sources besides leapfrog. We cannot only use voluntary data for those the grades, so we would love to do grades for ASCs, and that will be our goal. So stay tuned. Mm-hmm. And so you you mentioned the large employers. Um, do do the companies that um, participate with Leapfrog Group? I, I think you made reference to this, but if you if you could talk more, are are they do they have enough? data points, and I don't mean to call patients data points, but do they have enough information from their employees, let's say, who have gone and done um, a fairly routine, a common procedure, I don't mean to call it routine, a common procedure like knee replacement, to, did they start mining and looking at infection rates? Do, do they share, can they pool and share that data with each other? To some extent, particularly the larger ones can do that. They can, they can look at uh, they can work with other employers or they can look if they have a lot of employees in one region, they can they have data warehouses they work with that can um, plumb the data within that region. Some of them are working with larger entities like uh, um, there's an organization called Health Transformation Alliance, which is pooling data. I think they've started to do some of that. I mean, there's just now with more with the advances in um, big data and technology for for plumbing claims data i think they're doing a little bit more but what's surprising to me is how incredibly difficult it is for them to make sense of it um and i hear this a lot from employers it's just 
it's there's a lot of noise in claims data and it's mm. very very hard to figure out well was this infection caused by the setting or was it just because of something else or what happened here or why was this person in for so long in the hospital for for the minor procedure you know, and does that mean i should pull that claim or how do there's just there's a lot of noise and if you want to actually compare among providers what are my chances of a great outcome from surgeon A versus surgeon B versus surgeon C. If that's your question, that answer is not so straightforward, no matter how many claims you have. Yeah. You really have to know like all there's all the experience of, of surgeon A and what happened, what were the outcomes? You have to have good measures of that. And we don't have great measures for everything. And we don't have all the data for surgeon A usually, no matter what. We have a lot of it, but not all of it. And so you don't have, you know, so, so it gets tricky. So that's why they've created something like LeapFrog, because we can ask. Now, we don't ask Surgeon A. We don't ask individual surgeons. We work with a whole hospital, though, and we'll say, what's your C-section? How many um, births, how many live births do you do? How many of those are um, done between, let's say, 37 and 39 weeks gestation, which is early? And how many of those? are scheduled. So then we can from there and then we ask them all kinds of other stuff. And from there we can find out what's your rate of early elective deliveries, which are deliveries that should not be scheduled actually that are not safe. We can get at that. That it doesn't come out of claims. It doesn't come. We can't get it off birth certificates. There's just no way to get that except just ask them and have them report it methodically according to a measure that's been developed that we can then use to report it. So we're able to get rates of things like C-sections, like early elective deliveries, like infections that um, you just can't get very easily from the claims. And do you think, is it fair to say that um, a lot of, a lot of people out there would assume that hospitals are, or ASCs are, equally good in terms of um, preventing infections? And, and it, it, is that a fair assumption or, or how do we help people navigate if, if that's not the case? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who think that all hospitals are basically the same and that they all, they're kind of like a franchise, like a McDonald's or something where you pretty much know what you're going to get. They all, they all do things the sim, in a similar way. They follow similar rules and protocols and and that's, and, you know, everybody does, everybody is pretty much the same. I mean, I think there's, they might look a little different, but they're, they're providing the same service. And that um, is not the case. I mean, we see really significant variation among hospitals in their, um, in, in their, the harm that they do to patients to be mm -hmm. as bluntly as possible. They're, yeah is a major problem in this country of errors and accidents and infections in hospitals that harm patients and that are preventable. And we do see that some hospitals do a much better job, much better job of protecting their patients. And so that was why we put out the letter grades, the A, B, C, D, or F for every hospital, every general hospital in the country on how well they do at protecting patients. And it is important data. We've, we've actually looked at uh, differences between A, B, C, D, and F hospitals on uh, deaths 
preventable deaths from preventable errors. And, uh, and we found that there's, you're about twice as likely to get killed in a DRF hospital from a preventable error accident than you are in an A hospital. Wow. Very significant difference. So there's, there's, well, so, so first off on, on the letter grades, I mean, it, what's the distribution of the letter grades? Is it sort of a bell curve or like what, what percentage are A hospitals? It, it's a bell curve, but I, I think we're, we're, we're pretty good graders. We're not trying to, we're not trying to, uh, we're not trying to jab hospitals with this. We're not trying to make them uh, feel discouraged, <laughs> but on the other hand, we want to help patients. So, uh, so we, about a third of hospitals get an A. Mm-hmm. And then another another quarter or so get a B, and then C hospitals are basically either at the average or or below, and then the D's and the F's are about six percent of hospitals are D's or F's, uh, the bottom six percent of hospitals essentially, um, and mm-hmm. it is on a curve. So the vast majority are C's. Um, well, I, C's are I forgot what it is, but it's probably about. Yeah. 40% C's. So, um, and the C hospitals are, again, are mostly below average. So I would be very concerned about a C hospital. Right. And we update the grades every six months. So we do that because people, hospitals change very rapidly. The nice thing about this, uh, about really focusing on patient safety the way we have is to see hospitals improve, which we do. It, you, It is not impossible to be to go from a an F to an A, we've seen it, well, mm-hmm. it does, not overnight, but it it is possible to do it, and and fairly rapidly. I mean, it's all about changing how you do business and putting an extremely high priority on the what I would call mundane day to day things that are necessary to keep patients safe. Does everyone wash their hands every time? No exceptions. Right. Not as exciting as the brand new MRI machine that you're going to buy. You know, it's not as exciting as the new waterfall in the lobby, right. but uh, but it is the absolute critical factor that will improve safety. The same thing with: Do you follow the rules when you insert a central line? Every time, no exceptions, etc. Every you right. know, from the chief of surgery to the the dietary technician, everybody needs to follow every rule every time. That's hard. When it's done right, it works, and it's it's just the most exciting thing to see. Yeah, and and you know we talk about um, you know these these important questions of does everybody do it right all the time? You know, I think we're on the same page that if somebody's not following the procedure, there's very often a systemic reason or cause or barrier um, to that. So when organizations get better at solving those systematic problems that prevent people from doing the, the right things the right way, I would, I would expect the scores uh, to go up where, as opposed to organizations where, um, you know, people are just working around the problems. Again, I, I don't blame individuals for that. That's a culture thing. Does the organization encourage them to just um, throw their best work around in the situation? I would expect scores and letter grades um, to, to be more stagnant in that sort of environment. Do we make it easy? You know, in the lean approach, we often talk about, do we make it easy for people to do the right thing? They usually know what to do, but is the the, the system making it easy for them to, to do it or not? Right, exactly. And one of the, my, one of my personal interests, especially around safety is nursing because now I'm not a nurse, but uh, I, res- I admire nurses immensely. Yeah. 
And I actually worked, uh, my first job in healthcare was at the National League for Nursing. So I have that lens. And I, I, I and when I think about safety, I think about, uh, there's been a few studies on how workarounds, nursing workarounds are linked to poor outcomes, which to me makes total sense. Mm-hmm. But if nurses feel like they, it is hard for them to do the right thing and they have to come up with a new way of doing it, you know, they can't, the, the maybe the, the the soap dispenser is always out, so mm-hmm. they can't wash their hands every single time or something. And so the, what they do is they get it from another floor, and they or they you know yeah. something they they come with, up with a workaround. But the workarounds would indicate that their leadership as nurses and their voice as nurses is not being heard in the institution because it should be an institutional. Qu- if there's no soap in the soap dispenser, why can't your why can't your hierarchy of nursing or you get it filled and change the way housekeeping fills the soap dispensers? You know, why can't you change institutionally change the entire organization to make that happen? And when you start, you know, and this is where your work comes in, Mark, when you start filtering into why is it that soap dispenser doesn't get filled and why can't nursing get it, get housekeeping to change that you know, that protocol, mm-hmm. you yeah. start you start going in deeply into the system. So I do think nursing can be like the first domino. If nurses' voices are heard, that's the first domino in really making significant change in safety. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of minutes ago, you were talking about the significant variation in performance from hospital to hospital and how, um, you know, a C or a D grade, you know, being below average. Some, some hospitals are, of course, I mean, so, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be below average hospitals, but there's a, a meaningful difference in performance, which I, you know, I think is worth reemphasizing. But, you know, even with the significant variation in performance, it, it, to begin with, it's a significant problem. I, you know, I see on the front page of the LeapFrog um, group webpage, um, the, the the idea that's cited by by many that medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the U.S. and you know there's right. there's some controversy around that sometimes. So I was wondering if if you could talk about you know the scale of the problem and then since we've spoken four years ago, what progress do you see and is there also significant variation in the rates of improvement in different organizations? If you could elaborate on that. Sure. the The bad news is that we don't entirely know how many people die from these errors and accidents. Um, we just don't know. We Back to claims data, we don't know from claims data. We don't know from death certificates. We, are, we estimate, and we have now some fairly decent tools for estimating. Um, IHI came up with one that you can look at, you can delve into your medical records and pull out factors that would seem to indicate potentially an error happened that might have killed the patient. There's just different ways to try to do it. And and we and and we're better at it than we were like when to Errors Human came out 20 years ago and said, you know, that was the famous IOM report that said that uh, about a hundred thousand people were dying of preventable errors and accidents. Where at that time it was experts coming together and really making some very educated guesses. And now we're we actually have better data than that, but still not great. I mean, it's not perfect. And there's lots of controversy to your point about how many it is. No, there was one study that said it's anywhere from 200,000 to 400,000. That was in the Journal of Patient Safety. And it used that tr- that global trigger tool that was developed by IHI to come up with that number. 
and everybody said, no, it can't be that high. Um, but then um, Marty McCary for BMJ looked at all the studies and he said, well, looking at all the studies and their various, um, you know, the integrity of these different studies and the methods, et cetera, he uh, estimated that uh, it looks like about a median of about 200,000 people dying every year from these errors and accidents. And that's where that third leading cause of death came out of that. That's what it came out of. If it were a cause of death, that's what it would be. So, um, so, but I think he's probably uh, accurate. I think it's probably a little low, 200,000 based on our research. So we've looked at death rates from the, the indicators we look at in the safety grade. We have 28 indicators in the safety grade. Some of them we can't quantify deaths from, but the ones that we can and where there's literature and good literature on, we can estimate that uh, the number of deaths and for just those measures, they aren't all of them. So in fact, there are some of them that are, we know are major causes of death, but we, there's no quantification. There's no, there's no studies that can give it to us. But for the ones that we know about, um, we, we figure about 206, I think was our number, 200,000 uh, deaths per year. So we've been tracking it. And the good news is, so I gave you the bad news. It's hard to track, and but we can estimate. We've got a pretty good estimate based on, for us, based on the specific problems. So, and the rate of those problems. But then um, what we've been finding is that the number's going down the, of deaths that are associated with these indicators. So um, we're, we're tracking it about 45,000 fewer per year uh, mm. last year than the prior year. So that's significant. And, and it's not perfect data, but it's pretty good. I mean, we're saying here's all the infections and here's the rate of those infections. And then we just do the math. We know how many people die from this infection and boom, there's the math. And that's how we did it. And it was a team of researchers, by the way, John Hopkins, who actually did it. And so we can estimate that there's fewer of those deaths. Now, we're still having, you know, 150,000 people dying of these preventable accidents. So that's bad. That's horrible. But at least we're seeing a trend in the right direction, which when we're talking about patient safety is a huge statement. We've been trying for so long to see progress that it is encouraging that finally we see at least, uh, at least some, some steps forward. Yeah. And there, yeah. So you've got those steps forward and um, is it fair to say that the improvement is probably not equally distributed. That would be my hypothesis is that you've probably got some hospitals where um, the rate of errors and harm and death is probably stagnated or it's just fluctuating. And then there's some, I mean, I know, you know, there, there are the published studies out there where people have used um, lean methods to reduce certain infections by 80 to 95%. And it frustrates me that those, um, um, demonstrations of what's possible don't spread very quickly. So my, my, my theory would be kind of unequal distribution of improvement. You're, you, you, do you see the same thing? We see unequal distribution of achievement for sure. So that was the same researchers that, that figured out the reduction in the number of deaths also are the ones that can see the trend between death rates for A hospitals versus Ds and Fs, which are, you know, twice as high in Ds and Fs. So there's very significant variation among the hospitals. 
in their death rates. So in, in terms of looking at improvement, though that is completely anecdotal, but I would love to see researchers take our data, which we offer to researchers. So please, any researchers contact us. You have to sign a, a form to that you're going to use it appropriately, mm-hmm. meaning we don't, we don't govern how you use it. We just make sure that it's used accurately. But um, the, if a researcher wanted to take this data and really zone in on some of these hospitals that have shown improvement, there's definitely hospitals that have gone from, you know, D's or F's to A's. And, and we've heard anecdotally that many CEOs take this on as their number one priority to get to an A. Um, And that's huge to have CEOs of hospitals take on a patient safety challenge. I mean, that's, that's something we've been praying for forever that, CEOs at the top level of leadership would take this on. So we see this happening and we see individual cases and it would be great to have case studies that would, you know, look at it or, or researchers who would just really examine the data or talk to these hospitals or just go in and find out what they did because um, we think that there's definitely some good stories out there. Well, there, there certainly are. And um you know, again, I think you know, it's it's frustrating to see when something has been demonstrated, and some of this is even going back ten or fifteen years ago. I think of um, Dr. Rick Shannon, who I've interviewed on the podcast before, when um, he was involved in efforts first in uh, the Pittsburgh area, and then in Philadelphia, and then Virginia, of of repeating the same playbook. You know, kind of the Toyota-based playbook around having good. Um, standardized work or protocols or procedures or whatever you call it. And then, you know, creating this culture of real-time problem solving to eliminate barriers to following that practice. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame when, um, you know, that, that I think it's fair to say that the, the, those methods and, and, you know, it's, it's not even just about the procedure, but it's, it's the idea of having a culture of real-time problem solving, but that hasn't spread more, more quickly. Some of the solutions um, and, and, and approaches are, are gosh, they're, they're already out there. You know, I think that's one of the benefits of transparency and one of the challenges that healthcare leaders have faced is the lack of transparency. We're, healthcare is an industry that has a culture of not being transparent. Mm-hmm. We like to say, well, First, we're going to fix the problem, and then we'll make it public later. Mm -hmm. We can't get to that first because people will be embarrassed if we publicly report X, Y, or Z. And then that kind of that later never comes, and we just keep going. And that's just the tradition in healthcare. We we lean toward not making things public, not making things transparent. And and that has not served us well because ultimately you don't know where the – you know, where the success stories are. And you also don't have that, um, that, that moment to shine. Because let's say you achieve a goal that you've set for yourself and you, or, or you know, a health system sets for itself. You get to this goal, you, you've achieved something really major, and then there's nobody to share it with you because no one knows. Um, and that's, that's why I think the safety grade has been really effective it, because it is, you know, like it or not, the grade is out there for your whole community to see. It's going to show up in your newspaper. Your board's going to see it. Everybody's going to see it. And uh, if it's not the grade that you want, then you have to set your goals and get it, you know, get better. But when you get better, we're going to showcase that. Yeah. 
And I think having hospitals proud of their A's has made a huge difference in putting more of a priority on patient safety. Yeah. And and I was going to ask you, again, when you talk about transparency and the different studies that uh, Macquarie and others have done and the IOM did 20 years ago, um, you know, that, that, that there are estimates and, you know, because there's not, there's not consistent reporting and then, you know, people do their best to come up with estimates. And then I see some people in healthcare, um, you know, say, well, oh, these are only estimates. I'm like, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't poo poo the estimates uh, while not reporting accurate data. Hey, earlier, you know, uh, uh, go, you had a thought on that. I'm sorry. No, I was just laughing. Yeah, that's oh, exactly well, yeah. all the time. Yeah. But so the question was, you know, earlier you mentioned um, things that can be done legislatively. Are you aware of legislative efforts? There, there are people who have advocated for, you know, aviation style, mandatory, blame-free reporting systems. Is anything like that in the discussion these days? Well, I don't know if it's completely in the discussion, but it's something we've advocated for. I testified a year ago at the the Senate Health Committee uh, for more transparency of a lot of data, more transparency of the um, infection data for a variety of organizations, not just inpatient hospital care. I testified in favor of uh, generally more transparency um, for all all facilities like children's hospitals, et cetera. Um, and I think there needs to be more um, it just generally. Oh, and the other one was um, more transparency of accreditation. So accreditation reports should be made public. Patient de-identified information should be made public as far as we're concerned. They're used to give, in, in the case of hospitals, to give them deemed status, status under Medicare, meaning they're permitted to accept public funds. And so if if that's the justification allowing them to be public funds, then the public should have access to that justification. And so advocate for that. So there have mm-hmm. been a lot more efforts around accredit- uh, around transparency. And by the way, the Trump administration is very um, uh, adamant about transparency as well and have, has been working pretty hard at uh, improving transparency, both at the uh, quality side and the and the pricing side. So I think mm-hmm. that area is is definitely there's movement. I'm not certain where it's ultimately going to go. Um, and I do know there are some groups that are advocating for um, uh, an entity like you're describing, like a some kind of entity that would collect and report and process information about improvements in quality uh, at hospitals or and or around patient safety particularly. So um, I don't think that any of those have reached, you know, Capitol Hill yet, but mm-hmm. I do think that there are some some efforts around that. Um, so so maybe, um, maybe just two other questions before we wrap up. So you were, you, you were talking a couple of minutes ago about how, you know, it's good when safety is on, uh, you know, as part of the top goals for the CEO or the executive team. And, and I would agree because I've seen, you know, I think unfortunately at some hospitals, um, the CEO thinks safety, you know, has been delegated um, to, to right. a department or to a VP instead of, um, you know, having responsibility for that. But I, just, I want to share one example. Somebody um, had emailed me that um, you know, at their organization, they were happy that on the executive scorecard, uh, preventable harm 
was the very top line on the scorecard. I think, okay, well, that's great. The thing that I think was um, that part of what they shared, and I, sh- um, I, I shared the concern, is that their quote-unquote stretch goal for preventable patient harm, and it was expressed in the somewhat obtuse of you know harms per thousand bed days, and then you start doing the math based off of the number of beds in the hospital, and the quote-unquote stretch goal was quite literally about 0.19 preventable, or no, I'm sorry, no, 0.91. It was 0.91 preventable harms per day. And I, I was, I'm kind of flabbergasted by that. And, and that number wasn't really that much better than the previous year's performance. So it didn't seem very stretched. And then secondly, like, you know, almost one patient per day. It's kind of hard to, it's hard for me to accept that as a goal or to find that very, very motivating. I'm, I'm curious your reaction or what you would advise an executive team when it, when it comes to setting goals around this. Not that setting goals is the only important thing, but it's, it's part of the equation. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that that's a, not a stretch goal. That's a disturbingly low goal for, uh, um, for a CEO. Personally, I would say that. Um, but I, what we've seen is a number of hospitals are using our hospital safety grade in CEO contracts. So you could set a goal for A's, but I would say even more than that, set a goal for consistent A's over a period of time, because what we see are hospitals that are really extraordinarily good performers are the ones that have, you know, four or five A's in a row. There's something going on there. They're keeping that culture. They're maintaining this safety culture that they've created. It's not just like a one-off that they, you know, they had a few campaigns and boom, they got that A and then, but then it's gone the next round six months later that, you know, the consistency of that. So, I mean, that is one way to do it. It's we're using 28 measures. It's, it's, it's very, very good data on safety, but there are other measures as well. I just think that, um, and maybe even uh, culture of safety surveys, are very powerful, um, very powerful. And they really do, I think, reveal quite a lot about uh, whether the, the hospital as an organization is functioning the way it should be to promote safety. And it's not also, not just me saying that, it's also good research that, that suggests that there was mm-hmm. a, good, a good culture of safety survey. It has to be tested one. Those have shown real relationships to you know, actual safety outcomes. So I think that is another thing that really should be in every CEO contract. Yeah. Well, and so then, you know, yeah, a lot of it starts with then the boards in terms of um, the expectations that they're, they're setting for, uh, for the CEOs. And, you know, I, I would hope the leaders uh, from the different leapfrog, leapfrog group um, partners, um, you know, that, 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 I think there's an important role for business executives to try to get onto the boards of hospitals and health systems to try to have an influence that way. And do you, have you, do you know any business leaders who have tried to go that route to influence, try to help drive better performance? I know that I certainly know a lot of business leaders who are on hospital boards, but I would have to say that they have not seen that as a method of driving their performance. I think a lot of business leaders who are not in healthcare um, I find it bewildering when they get in on one of these mm-hmm. boards. And so that is one of our, one of our goals and maybe not the short term, but 
we're working on it is to be more helpful to these leaders for business who get on these boards in asking the right questions in, mm-hmm. in that setting and not feeling intimidated by the clinical language. I mean, hospitals have their own language. They speak their own and, and they do it. You know, I think there's some deliberateness to it. Mm-hmm. Some you kind of want to protect yourself with a lot of syllables, <laughs> you know, just a lot of Latin and syllables and stuff. And, and it's, well, it's mm-hmm. frightening sometimes to patients and it's frightening to, they won't admit it necessarily, but it's frightening to business leaders who sit there and say, well, they must know what they're talking about because they sound so, you know, and what do I have to say that will sound equally intelligent? Nothing. (laughs) And so they they don't want to sound stupid and say, are you telling me, you know, but but I think one of the first things that people can ask and in getting back to your example, that is kind of shocking to me, this 0.91 harms per day. the, The first question you can always ask about that is, how does that compare to other hospitals in this region and nationally or other, other similar hospitals nationally? How does that compare? Because uh, we don't ask that question enough in healthcare. And part of that is because we don't have the data because we don't have transparency. So we don't know, but sometimes we do know. And you can say, well, you know, it's 0.9 is, you know, the bottom 25% probably of, something so you know you, you begin to understand how it compares or you can say well why aren't we at the top where there you know the harm rate is so much lower those are the kinds of questions that even someone who's not steeped in clinical literature can understand and yeah. can can put their arms around and can can create a, from that a, a level of accountability that you can't get from just a number like 0.91 which if you don't know healthcare, i guess Mm-hmm. It sounds reasonable, but it's not. Well, Leah, thank you so much for um, you know your ongoing leadership around these issues and um, for for joining us on the podcast. Again, our, our guest has been Leah Binder, President and CEO of Leapfrog Group. I encourage you um, to go check them out. Leapfroggroup.org. Uh, Leah, I'll give you uh, the final word if there's a, another thought you'd like to share as we wrap up. Well, thank you, Mark. I think that the work that you're doing um, with health systems around culture and thinking about how they work as a system, how they work as teams, is so critically important. So I appreciate that you're out there doing that. I think in in today's world with with outbreaks and um, people being very nervous about uh, about their health and the health of their families, uh, I think your work has, is really probably at the center of what needs to happen. We have to work together. No one of us can can solve all the problems in healthcare alone. We have to be able to work together effectively. And I think yeah. that's the leadership that you're bringing to this, to this cause. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of people out there doing great work and um, we'll have to keep at it both in the short term and Long term. So, uh, Leah, again, thank you very much, and uh, hopefully, we'll we'll talk sooner than uh, another four years. There, there's a lot <laughs> to continue exploring. Great, great. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email Mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com. 